Hello, I'm Jason Kelly, and this is the Justice and War in American History podcast, which I co-host with my colleague, Ray Haberski. Today we have a special bonus episode. It's on the Family Readiness Program, which is a military program that creates a system to support military families during deployment. My colleague, Elliot Nowacki, worked in this program, and a few weeks ago when he and uh, Leah Namias and I sat down uh, to discuss women and gender in the experience of war, uh, we had this extended conversation about the familyness, family readiness program, and we decided it was worthy of its own episode. And so that's what you're listening to today. I hope you enjoy. This caretaking piece is, is really important. And Elliot, I want to throw this to you. We're going to jump out of time for a moment uh, because one of the things that's so obvious in this document, and Elliot, I think you've already mentioned this, is that one of the things that the women in this article and the organizations in this article are talking about is taking care of the folks left behind. And this is something for the organizations to do for these nonprofits, as it were, to, to jump in and fulfill a role that um, either has been ignored by the government uh, or, or can't be taken care of by the government. But Elliot, this has changed over the course of the 20th century. And so this is this is an area where you're an expert. And I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about how this caretaking and relations uh, w- between military, government, and families has changed maybe even over the last 50 years. Okay. Thanks for the question. So I'm going to start out with a personal antidote. Uh, my father was drafted into the U.S. Army in 1952. And he got drafted in Pennsylvania and was sent to engineering school in Virginia and then was sent to France, to Vedon, for two years. Um, my mother was pregnant when my dad left. Um, they were in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. To the best of my knowledge, my mother never received any communications from the military, from the unit my dad was assigned to, of course, because they were in France. Uh, and there was no such thing as the family readiness group, which I'm going to come to here in a moment. So um, I learned of this when I interviewed my father before he passed away in a series of interviews to get the family history, and this is one of the things that will always remain in my mind. Uh, He was allowed two phone calls per year uh, for 10 minutes uh, from the the base where he was at there in Vedon, and so he was able to speak to my mother at least two or three times before he returned. Uh, the other thing I remember is that when he out-processed in Pennsylvania, the sergeant handed him $5 and said, good luck. Speed forward uh, to Desert Shield, Desert Storm. This is really when what's now called the Family Readiness Group, at least in the Army, I cannot speak for the other services, uh, but in the Army it became very apparent, uh, especially in Germany, because we never thought in Germany we'd be deploying our military equipment and personnel to an, another place in the world, which was the Middle East. It was always the Cold War, and we're going to fight the Soviets, you know, along the Czechoslovakian, East German border, uh, and, you know, the Cold War. So this is the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, this woke up a lot of people because they realized how unprepared they were, especially because the units were being deployed to a different geographical location. And is my understanding in the next few years after Desert Shield, Desert Storm, the Army and the other services began uh, developing policies for what is now called in the Army again, the Family Readiness Group. There's actually a, a, a manual for this that you have, it's an Army manual. Um, 
but that didn't come till later. So what's the so what of this for, for, for me? Um, so I was a company commander. My first training in family, family readiness group operations was in 1996 when I was a company commander, battery commander at 1st Cavalry Division Artillery at Fort Hood, Texas. So I attended a commander's course for a week, and part of the instruction was you're in charge of your family readiness group. So this means that there has to be a, a phone roster of the spouses, their telephone numbers. Uh, this is pre-iPhone, pre-internet, really. Uh, no emails, no websites. Um, and you need to have meetings every once in a while to talk to everyone to see how things are going. So I did that. Um, my next experience was very brief. I uh, wasn't actually involved in it too much. Uh, but in February of 2003, I was speed forward. I'm now uh, a major and I'm serving in an artillery battalion in uh, Bobenhausen, Germany. Uh, the brigade and the battalion headquarters were both on the same base. The brigade commander and his sergeant major call a meeting. And at that meeting, it's at the theater in Babenhausen, Germany, and it's for open for all the spouses and soldiers. And at that meeting, he puts up on the slide, we're deploying, and we can expect to be gone for a year. I remember when the slide went up, we anticipate being gone for a year and hearing the gasps and the cries in the audience, sitting in the back, towards the back. So I won't spend a lot of time on that. I was in Iraq 20 years ago. I was not involved in these kinds of family readiness things too much. Uh, but where I really became involved in this was in 2005 when uh, my commander at 5th Corps Artillery, I'm now in Heidelberg, Germany, picked me to be the rear detachment commander uh, for a 185-person uh, unit that was going to deploy to Iraq in late December 2005. So in the summer of 2005, I attended uh, one week a full course on nothing but family readiness group operations. It was required for all of the rear detachment commanders to attend this course. So ranks, cat could be captain, could be major. In a few cases, there were lieutenant colonels. So all the units that were deploying in 2006 from Germany, they had to have rear detachments. Um, the USERA commander, so USERA for our non-military listeners is U.S. Army Europe. At that time was a general, a three-star general by the name of B.B. Bell very dynamic and high energy person. I, I don't think I ever met him in person, but I, I heard him speak and on the radio, the Armed Forces Radio Network there in Europe, uh, very high energy. He basically said, you will attend this training to all the rear detachment commander designees. You have the most difficult job in the U.S. Army. And I'm going to come to some examples about that in a moment. So from December 2005 to February of 07, I was the rear detachment commander for 5th Corps Artillery uh, just outside of Heidelberg, Germany, in a smaller city called Schwetzigen. Again, 185 personnel deployed to Iraq. Uh, approximately half of them were married, many of those who were married, of course, with children. Some of our soldiers were single mothers and fathers as well. That's a whole other can of worms of who takes care of the child or the teenager when they're gone, and I'm not going to talk about that today. Uh, so it was me, uh, if I'm, my memory serves me collect correctly, uh, my first sergeant was an E7. I'm obviously not going to mention any names here. I have fond memories of our collaboration together. And then 10 to 12 enlisted personnel. So I'm the senior person, and my e, the E7, the first sergeant, is the senior non-commissioned officer. Our job, two things. Take care of all the issues that come up with the spouses, whatever they may be, and help them as best we can. And then we, had, we did have most of our vehicles 
were left behind, but we had a contract with German contractors to maintain those vehicles because obviously these 10 to 12 enlisted soldiers and myself were not going to be keeping vehicles maintained in the motor pool. So there was a German contract for that. Um, the interpersonal dynamics, here is what I would like to spend my, my remaining time on. Um, I, made, I thought about this for a while, some general comments. So the thing you need to keep in mind from my perspective um, is that I was trained as a field artillery officer and then as a Russian foreign area officer. I am, received no training in psychology uh, other than these required trainings as a company commander, which was just a few hours and then later a week. Uh, and all of a sudden, I am now responding to spouses with problems. Um, here are some general observations. Some of the spouses were more independent than others. Uh, some of them I actually didn't see the entire time the, their husbands or wives were gone. Um, hats off to them because they're not required. They were not required to interact with me. Uh, it was a handful, but... I was really proud of those folks. And, you know, I never said anything to them, but they were independent operators. And remember, we're abroad. We're in a country where, yeah, a lot of people speak English, but once you go off the bases and you go into the stores, you know, it's all in German. And one of the reasons I was selected to stay back is because I, I speak German and I spent many years there. And so I was, it was, an, it was a, a skill that assisted me greatly in this job. Um, and I won't go into some stories about that, but it did. Uh, the other trend that I remember or issues that came up, we had uh, spouses with teenage boys. And I had to get involved a couple of times with issues with the teenage boy rebelling. Now, I want you to think about that. I am not connected to this family, and I'm being asked to perhaps talk to the young man or the young men, uh, spend a little time with them, didn't spend a lot and interact with the spouse who is having some serious issues with the husband not being there. This was very difficult. And this didn't come up in any of the training manuals that we went over, of course, right? Um, the other thing that I'll, and I really need to mention this because this really got under my skin. Um, initially, we were told, my first sergeant and I, and you all are going to, for without the military background, we're going to be like, you have to be kidding me. But this is really what the policy was. The policy established by uh, the USERA commander was within a year, I may be getting the, the facts wrong here, but you had to go and inspect the quarters of all of the people who, were, who stayed behind. So I want you to think about that. You're asking someone, an officer, me, the rear detachment commander and my first sergeant, or potentially the leader of the family readiness group, who was a non-commissioned officer's wife, because I would never go to somebody's quarters by myself, right? That's obvious. To go to, you know, 90 different quarters and walk around inside someone's house. I, I did a few of those, and I stopped. And I stopped because it was extremely uh, unreasonable, and it made a lot of the spouses very uncomfortable. In fact, I, I'll never forget one spouse came up to me after the very first meeting after the unit had deployed to Iraq, and she got really almost in my face and said, Major Nowacki, if you think you're coming to my home, you got another thing coming. They were aware of this policy. So we did a few, uh, mostly at the officer level. I may have done one non-commissioned officer's residence. 
my first sergeant or the, the, the spouse who led the family readiness group was always with me. I never went anywhere, obviously, for obvious reasons, uh, by myself. Or if I met with a spouse, I, would, I had to meet with a spouse one-on-one. It would be in a public place, obviously, right? So that was one of the things that I did not like. I didn't agree with the policy, and it's, I don't believe that my colleagues, who were also rear detachment commanders in other parts of Germany, actually executed this and went and visited all the residents. I just think it was too difficult. Um, to the Army's credit, we were given the opportunity with the chaplain uh, and interestingly, the chaplains didn't come up, I don't think, in any of these discussions. I don't remember Lieutenant Colonel Nark mentioning chaplains. But we were given funding uh, through the Fifth Corps, Fifth Corps chaplain to have two retreats for the spouses. Uh, one of them was near Stuttgart. I, I, I'm remiss, I do not remember the name of the town. It was a beautiful place. And the other one was towards, um, towards France, uh, towards Ramstein Air Base. But again, I... I I can't remember the name, unfortunately. These were amazing events. They were usually four days, so for Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Folks arrive on Thursday night, and the chaplain had a complete program. I attended, but I was not a presenter. Um, And he had just people come in and talk, and it was really, uh, I was just amazed that they made these events uh, available for the spouses. And the other units had the opportunity to do these too. So that was pretty cool. the other thing, just to finish up, I did have to make a couple of hospital visits uh, to spouses who had uh, given birth to children, uh, which was an interesting experience. One of those was in a German hospital in Heidelberg, and you know I was the unit commander, and so you know I, I believe if I remember, I took a small gift or some flowers to the spouses. Um, and then finally, one of the more interesting things, and when we look back now with the technology, it seems a little, little odd, but we had a, a video tele, teleconferencing screen in our headquarters. And early on, we realized that we could use that to connect with the conference room at Alfal Palace in Baghdad, Iraq. And then we developed, of course, you can see where this is going. I can't remember if they were monthly or bi-monthly opportunities for the spouses to sign up uh, for a time of 15 to 30 minutes with their spouse on the screen, of course, with the door closed. It was just the spouse and the soldier on the other end speaking. Uh, I have horrible memories. Sometimes these would start and then we would lose the connection and we would have spouses come in and they were extremely agitated with me and with the, the folks, my first sergeant, and the communications folks. And this is completely out of our control, of course. Um, I lost a lot of sleep over these kinds of things not working. And I always had a lot of angst uh, before we did these because I was never sure if the connection was going to be good or not. And it was just, yeah, very stressful. But now, of course, this is not an issue with Skype and Zoom. And soldiers who are deployed uh, should not be having any trouble communicating with their spouses in a private setting. Um, so I know that's a really long answer to your question, but I felt I needed to dive down. I, I could write a book about that year. I kept pretty good notes in my planner that I used at a time, a paper planner, and maybe I'll do that someday. Uh, but thank you for allowing me to share this with you. Thanks so much, Elliot. I mean, it's really good to hear the specific ways, right, in which the military is thinking about this. And kind of my 
awareness of how much conversation happened in the Afghan and Iraq wars um, around the need to, like, for society to kind of wrap around the entire family of deployed troops. Um, And I think a lot about how... Um, so it's great to see the military doing that. That was also kind of a call to all citizens, right? And I feel like the Obama administration had that kind of I don't know, stronger together, right? It was about like, how do we kind of welcome veterans home? Um, and I think it's interesting too, right? Like the, the, the awareness that the transition home will be healthier and easier, hopefully for everyone, if we're kind of being thoughtful and mindful of the family during the deployment um, and thinking about those needs. Um, now, to take it way back, something out not in the readings, but, you know, I was John Bodner's student at IU, and I remember in his Love and War in American Film class, you know, the kind of messaging that's happening in, in war films is often to women um, on the home front about kind of what are the you know, what are the proper ways to be a supportive spouse while troops are deployed and when they come home um, and, you know, how much anxiety exists in a, in a family around a long deployment, right? Not only fear for safety, but just fear for, like, the marital bond, right? The parental bond. Um, and so how much work has been done kind of both in this really compassionate way, other than the home inspections. I don't know if I would like that either, Elliot. Um, uh, but also, you know, the kind of the messaging, the propaganda side of things in, in different wars to, to try to address that anxiety and, and tell women how to um, work through that in a very non-questioning, <laughs> patient way. So anyway, those are other kind of gendered experiences um, of yeah. war. And I would like to just throw out some other things for our audience to consider. Um, a lot of this... The family readiness group depends on what kind of unit you are. And by this, I mean, is it an active duty army unit? Is it a reserve unit? Or is it a National Guard unit? Because the reserve and the National Guard units have a very diff- a much more difficult mission here because the, the people who comprise those units are spread all over a state. And in some cases, a good part of the United States at very various states. And so I, I can't really speak to how they deal, you know, how they've dealt with it over the, you know, since 9-11, essentially, um, or even during Desert Storm, Desert Shield. But that's a much more difficult problem uh, because you've got people geographically dispersed where if your unit overseas, the spouses that are usually they're right there in the military community. And then, of course, here in the United States, um, they're usually they live on or near the base. And I would also say, from my discussions with my fellow veterans over the years, it being overseas uh, stationed and having your children over there is, is much different than being here in the United States, well, because of the language and you're in your own country. Uh, so the difficulties in getting things, getting around, taking trips, and all this uh, is much easier uh, to weave in something that Leah said uh, that I also think is important to mention so in 2006, 2007, when the unit that I was overseeing, the rear detachment commander, um, was in Iraq, each soldier there was given uh, two full weeks of R&R leave. So they did have the opportunity to come back. Unfortunately, because of the number of people, some of them had to start coming back just three months into their deployment, which meant then eight months away. Um, and they started the roster almost immediately after they got there, figuring out who's going to go and who's, 
we you know factor in high school graduations, prom, kindergarten, these kinds of things where the, the unit commander down there, uh, the, the Corps artillery commander and his staff did a great job making sure that the soldiers' wishes could be um, uh, accommodated to the best of their ability. And I'm sure there were some who just didn't get that opportunity, but they did their, they did their best. And finally, I'll say, you, you made a good point, uh, Lay, at the beginning of your comment just a minute ago about reintegration. So the Army, and again, I can't speak for the other services, but they figured out very quickly in 2003 and four that just allowing a unit to come back, to meet in the gym, to be reunited with their spouses, and then everyone goes on leave is not a good way to do business. So by 2007, or late 2006, 2007, when the unit I was managing came, or overseeing the rear detachment came back, along with other units from Heidelberg, the soldiers had to go through what was called um, reintegration process. And if I remember correctly, it was at least a week. Um, they were given medical review. Psych they got to meet with a psychiatrist looking for PTSD. Um, I don't know how effective that may have been if you've only get 15 or 20 minutes with a psychiatrist from the Heidelberg Hospital, but they made an effort. Uh, there was effort, you know, they get their POVs back, they get their rights to drive again. Um, unfortunately, many soldiers from across Europe and probably from across all of the services lost their lives um, when they would come back and not have this kind of decompression training. Uh, and they would go back, especially come back to the States, and they'd have a lot of money because they are not taxed um, and not spending a lot of money when you're in Iraq or Afghanistan. They would buy motorcycles, and there were many, many fatalities because they want their freedom, and they would get on these motorcycles and not, being, not getting the proper training. And there were several deaths, I know, in Germany uh, due to uh, safety and operating motorcycles without you know proper decompression and training. So... Um, I have to assume the Army and the other services have continued this, so people who are coming back today from Iraq, we still have soldiers in Iraq and you know, not, nothing in Afghanistan anymore. But even if you're on a regular deployment, not in a combat zone, you still, it's my understanding, have to go through uh, this reintegration training before you're released to, to go on leave. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Justice and War in American History. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. I hope that you're also subscribed to the podcast through your favorite podcast provider. If you're not already, please go online, uh, follow us, subscribe to the podcast. And while you're there, feel free to give us a rating. Uh, that helps us reach more people. Finally, if you're interested in the program itself, because uh, there is a larger program beyond the podcast, feel free to go to our website. It's at justiceandwarseminar.org. That's justiceandwarseminar, all one word, .org. Again, thanks for listening, and thanks to our sponsors, the National Endowment for the Humanities, for making this program possible.